the first time Joanne and I met, which was on a, a book festival on the Isle of Man. I can remember the book that you chose as well. Do you remember what it is? I, I don't think it was Gormenghast, but was it? It wasn't. What, could it, it was it, by Shirley Jackson. Oh, yes. It, it, well, it, OK. It will have been um, We've Always Lived in the Castle. We've Always Lived in the Castle. Which we made an episode of Batlisted about, didn't we, several years we ago? We did, yeah. We love that book. Joanne said a brilliant thing on that panel, which Joanne I have ripped off repeatedly ever since, so I apologise in advance. You said a really great thing on that panel, which is you said classics need to be popular or unpopular at the point of publication. It's quite unusual that you have a classic that comes out very quietly. It's much more likely that, as in the case of the book we're going to talk about today, it has to have an impact, even if it's a negative impact, on arrival. No, a negative impact is, is sometimes just as good. Think of The Wasp Factory. Yeah, That's a great example. Think of the, the, the terrible reviews The Wasp Factory got and... The publisher rather audaciously just printed them all on the cover and, and it sold like gangbusters. Same with American Psycho. I mean, we could still debate the merits of American mm. Psycho, but if we were thinking about a novel that sums up a particular 80s, 90s sensibility, there it is from the late 20th century. Yes, absolutely. And the troubled publication history of Ulysses going back to, I mean, you know, nobody could doubt that, that Ulysses was going to make some kind of historical statement even though it took a long time for it to be, as it were, properly published in the UK and even longer in the US. How fortunate, then, that we're discussing another 20th century classic today. Indeed. So, so, so tightly bound up already, Nick. This is, this is going so well. John. Should we do the... Let's do it. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us lurking in a long, gloomy library in the eastern wing of an even gloomier, time-eaten, ivy-choked castle. The walls are covered floor-to-ceiling in shelves, each packed tight with rows of musty, leather-bound volumes. The only source of illumination is a huge chandelier which casts a circle of light on a table made from a single slab of polished black marble. In front of the table, there are five chairs filled with a strange collection of people, there for some kind of ceremony. A tiny, ancient man, his face a mass of wrinkles, stands and intones in a dry voice, but his words are soon drowned out by coughs as the air slowly fills with smoke. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and joining us today is... The author, Joanne Harris, OBE. Hello, Joanne. Hello, it's lovely to be back. Hi, Joanne. Joanne is the author of 19 novels. I believe that's right. <laughs> I think so. I, I think I stopped counting. Who's counting? It's just scary if you count too far. Most famously, Chocolat, of course, uh, but most recently, A Narrow Door, which was published last year and is out now in paperback. Is that right? That's right, yes. Good, OK. And your work covers a full suite of genres, literary, gothic, romance, psychological, fantasy, folklore, plus novellas, short stories, game scripts, the libretti for two short operas, several screenplays, a stage musical. You'll always be welcome here, Joanne, on that basis. <laughs> and three cookbooks. Her books are now published in over 50 countries and have won a number of British and international awards. A passionate advocate for authors' rights, Joanne is currently the chair of the Society of Authors, 
a member of the board of the Authors Licensing and Collecting Society, ALCS. And we're just going to thank Joanne for all the work that she does on behalf of any of us who write books. Absolutely. Ensuring that we get paid for what we do. So thank you very much. <laughs> well, it's always good. Indeed. Thank you, Joanna. Thank you. According to her own website, she enjoys the following obfuscation, sleaze, <laughs> rebellion, witchcraft, armed robbery, tea and biscuits, and is not above bribery and would not necessarily refuse an offer involving perfume, diamonds or pink champagne. You haven't changed. Not really, no. She works from a shed in her Yorkshire garden and she still plays in the band she first joined when she was 16. Now, Joanne, what is your band called? Well, we are called, currently, we're called Joanne Harrison, the Storytime Band, because that's that's the show we do. We do live music, original music, songs and stories. Which is excellent. But please let me ask, what were you called when your band formed, though? That's what really matters. Uh, Well, we were originally called for a very short time Childhood's End. Childhood's End? I think it's very good, Childhood's End. Very good. Is it it after the Arthur C. Clarke novel? Of course. Or the Pink Floyd song? Or is the Pink Floyd song? It's about the novel, obviously. Amazing. Okay. Amazing. Very good. Is there any name you feel embarrassed about? Many other names. Well, we we went through a phase of wanting to play live, but we didn't play live for about, well, for about 20 years. And so we didn't have a name for a while. So we were the band with no name. Um, But (laughs) we we were also called, you were called the Garden Wall for a while. And we were also called Happenstance for a time. Um, nice. Ooh. But, you know, there were a lot of uh, very silly suggestions. Getting some f- prog folk kind of feels from well, that. Well, it was definitely a bit of a prog folk outfit, and it still is. <laughs> there's a kind of Stackridge feel to happenstance. Yeah, that, yeah. There's, a, there's an extremely <laughs> obscure... There's a thing. For, but that's... Oh, well, I love that. OK, very good. Well, ch- I think I like Childhood End. Well, I like yeah. it too. The book... Or books we're here to discuss today uh, is the Gormenghast trilogy by Mervyn Peake. Let me interrupt you, John, immediately. Is it a trilogy? Ah, that is one of the th- that you... is one of the things we will be discussing today. Yes, indeed. It's a trilogy in more than three books. The yeah. three books that are often regarded as the Gormenghast trilogy by Mervyn Peake. The first volume, Titus Grown, was published in 1946. Gormenghast and Titus Alone followed in 1950 and 1959. All were originally published in the UK by Eyre and Spottiswood. Widely acknowledged as one of the key series of post-war fantasy novels, the Gormenghast trilogy, a thought by many to transcend the genre, we'll discuss that too. Harold Bloom literary critic, American literary critic, thought the three books formed one of the greatest sequences in modern world literature. Did he? I didn't And Anthony Burgess concluded his introduction to Titus Grown with this endorsement. There is no really close relative to it in all our prose literature. It is uniquely brilliant and we are right to call it a modern classic. One thing is certain, once you enter the castle of Gormenghast, you never forget it. All the remarkable cast of characters that Peake created to populate it. But before we brave the mud and nettles and begin the long climb up to the Hall of Spiders, Andy, what have you been reading this week? Well, uh, I've been reading a novel by Gwendolyn Brooks, far better known as a poet, born in 1917 and died in 2000. She was the first black author to win the Pulitzer Prize with her collection Annie Allen, which was in 1949. And um, she was the first black woman inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Letters. She had a long and glorious career. 
she wrote one novel and it's called Maud Martha and it's just been published in the UK for the first time which tells something of a story it's been available in America uh, for the last 50 years but uh, we in the UK uh, uh, have just got the opportunity to read it uh, and it's terrific been brought back or brought to bookshops by Ella Griffiths, who's an editor at Faber and Faber, who's running a list called Faber Editions, which is devoted to bringing back older books, some of which will be familiar to backlisted listeners. They by Kay Dick, which is also available from McNally Editions in the States. Mrs. Caliban by Rachel Ingalls. Palace of the Peacock by Wilson Harris. And a brilliant novel called The Glass Pearls by Emmerich Pressburger, which we talked about on this podcast back in 2016, on episode number 16. Anyway, Maud Martha is a short novel. It's about 100 pages. It's the story of uh, one little girl growing up to a woman into a woman on the south side of 1940s Chicago. It's effectively... Uh, a series of prose poems, 30, 32, 33 prose poems. And you dip in and out of Maud Martha's life. It deals with all the things that the black community had to deal with in day-to-day American life over a span of about 40 to 50 years. And it's done with a lightness of touch, which is... I found completely transporting. I, I found this book deeply involving while also having a gloss on its surface which creates a really interesting tension with this isn't a page turner <laughs> but <laughs> but I mean Sounds that great. because you want to spend time in each chapter. So I'm just going to read chapter 5 which is called You're Being So Good, So Kind. It's very, very short. And this will give you a flavour of uh, what the novel is like. I don't think a more orthodox fiction writer would be capable of this. I think you can tell this is a poet's novel. Anyway, here goes. Maud Martha looked the living room over. Nicked old upright piano. Sag seat leather armchair. Three or four straight chairs that had long ago given up the ghost of whatever shallow dignity they may have had in the beginning and looked completely disgusted with themselves and with the Brown family. Mantle with scroll decorations that usually seemed rather elegant, but which, since morning, had become unspeakably vulgar, impossible. There was a small hole in the sad-coloured rug near the sofa. Not an outrageous hole, but she shuddered, She dashed to the sofa and manoeuvred it till the hole could not be seen. She sniffed a couple of times. Often it was said that coloured people's houses necessarily had a certain heavy, unpleasant smell. Nonsense, that was. Vicious and nonsense. But she raised every window. Here was the theory of racial equality about to be put into practice, and she only hoped she would be equal to being equal. No matter how taut the terror, the fall proceeds to its dregs. At seven o'clock, her heart was starting to make itself heard, and with great energy she was assuring herself that though she liked Charles, though she admired Charles, it was only at the high school that she wanted to see Charles. 
This was no Willie or Richard or Sylvester coming to call on her. Neither was she Charles's Sally or Joan. She was the whole, quote-unquote, coloured race. And Charles was the personalisation of the entire Caucasian plan. At three minutes to eight, the bell rang hesitantly. Charles. No doubt regretting his impulse already. No doubt regarding with a rueful contempt the outside of the house so badly in need of paint. Those rickety steps. She retired into the bathroom. Presently, she heard her father go to the door, her father, walking slowly, walking patiently, walking unafraid, as if about to let in a paper boy who wanted his 20 cents, or an insurance man, or Aunt Vivian, or no more than Woodette Williams, her own silly friend. What was this she was feeling now? Not fear, not fear. A sort of gratitude. It sickened her to realise it as though Charles in coming gave her a gift, recipient and benefactor. It's so good of you. You're being so good. It's great. It's beautiful. So there you go. Uh, that's uh, Maud Martha by Gwendolyn Brooks, and that's available from Faber Editions now. Yeah, John, what have you been reading this week? Um, I've been indulging myself, I have to say. I, I got the great pleasure of uh, re- interviewing Jeff Dyer at, Hay, at the Hay Festival and I'm rereading his um, his latest book. Is it his tennis book? Is it his legendary tennis book? It is It is called The Last Days of Roger Feather and Other Endings. It is not really much to do with tennis. It oh, is good. to do with... Okay. It is to do with ending things. It's to do with the ending of novels, the ending of life. Uh, it's how great artists and philosophers like Turner, Nietzsche, Beethoven uh, tackled um, uh, tackled the, the the end of things. Nietzsche is a, is a constant throughout the book, but so is Bob Dylan, um, oh. so is John Coltrane. Okay. I mean, he writes with such great um, joy and humour and insight about all kinds of things. But it, it's a Jeff Dye book, so you can go from Nietzsche to uh gene reese uh to andy murray's um uh, 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 d- decision to to stop playing tennis in the space of a few paragraphs uh, if this makes it sound random i should say that he's constructed the book very carefully into 360 you know he's obviously recently turned 60 there are three sections each of 60 chapters so there are 120 chapters i, I suppose altogether and he was very carefully tried to impose an eighty-six thousand four hundred page limit on it, so that the words, sixty is not a page. So, sorry, uh, uh, words. So the, <laughs> yeah, okay. the, the idea is the the idea is that there is there is a kind of um, there is a, a, an order in there, as he might say, very faint, very human. But I'm I'm I, I could talk to you about Nietzsche's uh, theory of eternal return if 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 you like, but actually. What I prefer to do is to read Jeff at his best. A short paragraph. This is, this is from the um, from the second section, paragraph nine. Um, it gives you perfect flavour of the book. This is Jeff Dyer at his at his absolute best. I think it's funny and clever and and very moving in places. But this, you, I think, I think everybody who listens to this, who knows Backlisted, will enjoy this. At any poetry reading, however enjoyable, the words we most look forward to are hearing. <laughs> Or always the same. Already laughing. I'll read two more poems. The words we truly long for are... I'll read one more poem. 
but two seems to be the conventionally agreed minimum. It's lovely hearing this. You can feel a sigh of relief passing through the audience, especially if the previous couple of poems have been precedent-setting sonnets <laughs> clocking in at under a minute each. <laughs> After long months in the sea of poetry, the shout has gone up from the crow's nest. Land! We're almost there. We've made it. We can practically taste the scurvy, hailing lager being poured in a bar afterwards. But then these last two poems turn out to be the opposite of the sonnets that had served as a double false dawn before the concluding multi-part epics. The felt duration of each is twice as long as the ring in the book. Which raises a question. Why did we come if, while being here, we would end up being so preoccupied by no longer being here? Could it be that our deepest desire is for everything to be over with? We want encores, value for money, bang for our buck. But however vigorously we've been clapping and clamouring for more, there is invariably a sense of relief when it becomes clear that the band, despite our collective imploring, are not coming back. That the house lights have flicked on, bringing the last residue of applause to an immediate, slightly impolite halt, and that we can apply ourselves single-mindedly, to getting a good place in the stampede for the exits. Beneath it all, writes the minor poet, desire of oblivion runs. <laughs> oh, it's very good. So it's called, unbelievably, The Last Days of Roger Federer. It's just lovely. Jeff Dyer, The Last Days of Roger Federer, um, published by Canongate, on top form. We'll be back in just a sec. Joanne, before I ask you, when you first read Gormenghast, I'm actually going to jump the queue and say, this has been one of the greatest pleasures I've ever had for an episode of Batlisted. But that's not what I thought it was going to be when you nominated it. Agreed. <laughs> because I tried reading this when I was a teenager and couldn't get on with it at all. And clearly something has happened to the book in the subsequent 35 years. Not to me, but I, <laughs> I found this totally um yeah mind-blowing is the right word mind-blowing it blew my mind i could not believe how different it was to what i thought it was going to be and how it isn't like anything else so thank you so much john i don't know did you read this when you were a, a kid uh yeah i, I think i had a, i think i similar to you andy i my my dad was a huge fan um, and he'd introduced me to um, to Tolkien, and I just I was just remember being intrigued by the books because I couldn't work out what they were. It was the Penguin classics that he had by his bedside, and I I started to read Titus Groan, and I like you I didn't I didn't finish it I, I you know and, and those were the days when it was quite okay not to finish anything, and I it sort of haunted me it sort of haunted me ever since. Because I hear people talking about, I've heard people for the last 30 years talk about it with such passion and 
Um, so like you, um, the opportunity to tackle the thousand pages of the three canonical uh, um, Gorman books. <laughs> well said. More later. Yeah, carefully done. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm still. I have to say, I'm. I'm still. I'm kind of still reeling. I, I don't. I, I don't think I've read anything quite like it ever. Yeah. And I think maybe that's what we're going to say a, a lot during the course of this discussion. They are as original and striking and troubling and brilliant and odd as any anything I've ever read. And uh, I particularly was 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 astonished by the the last book which came as a bit of a shock and we'll talk about that too i'm sure but yeah i mean so yeah similar to you amazing and thank you joanne for the for the opportunity to do it yeah thank you joanne i was well we must talk about titus alone i'm absolutely fascinated by titus alone but we need to do the groundwork first so joanne what does gormengast mean to you as a writer well it's one of those books that i read young and I probably didn't understand it in the same way at the age at which I discovered it than I do now. And I keep revisiting it. I, I keep coming back to it because it's so rich and there's so much in there. And every time I look at it, it has changed. I mean, really classic books are supposed to do this anyway. They're supposed to grow with you. Um, this one doesn't just grow. It, it changes completely. Um, and you see complete areas of plot and tone and poetry that you didn't see before. And I think that it, it, it just has this fascinating kaleidoscopic quality that every time you visit it, depending on what sort of mood you're in, you will see something different. So um, so I, I just love it in that it's, it's a kind of Bible for what words can do in all kinds of mm. different circumstances. It's got, Brilliant. it's got pathos, it's got bathos, it's got poetry, it's got weird verse it's it's got sort of beautiful limpid sections of of nature writing and it's got these strange squiggly cramped characters and and it has these these larger than life characters and these puppet characters and these these weird subplots that that seem to go nowhere but that actually underpin the whole thing it has no no connection with any kind of novel structure that I've yeah. ever come across really except perhaps perhaps yeah. for Ulysses and people like Thomas Love Peacock might come somewhere there but it's just it's a kind of amazing miracle grab bag of of words I think when I first discovered it that that's what it was to me because half the vocabulary I didn't know and I had to keep looking it up and that had never happened to me before and so it was, oh, so this is the English language. Wow, let's get in there and, and get some more of, of those words. And how did childhood end front woman Joanne Harris uh, discover these books? Can you remember? Did you, were you oh, given yeah. the Penguin classics or? My, my flute teacher told me that I should read them. And so I got, I, I was 15 and I was just about to take my mock O-levels and I borrowed Gormenghast from the school library because it was the one that was there. I hadn't any idea that, that there was a sequence in which to read them and it didn't yeah. seem to matter. So I plunged into the story halfway through and, and I just fell in there and, and I stopped revising. Um, I basically read all of the books during the whole of my revision period 
and between exams I read the books. I just couldn't stop and I was fixated by them and, and I stayed that way for a really long time. And do you feel they were your, you know, there's a famous phrase about teenagers when they encounter a book or a piece of music or a film at a certain age, they're wet cement, you know, and that's the thing that leaves the, the handprints in them. Is this your equivalent, Gormenghast? Do you think this is your, your founding myth? It might have been. It, might, it was part of it, certainly. I think possibly I started earlier than that and some of my wet cement moments were with Ray Bradbury. Mm. And, but this was a step along the way because actually some of the things I like about Mervyn Peake I also like about Ray Bradbury. There is this, this intense passion and this desire to express emotions and this exclamatory poetic kind of grand gesture of a thing that, that they've both got going. Um, but Peake does it in this, this, this much denser way, much more, it, it was much more of an adult thing. And I hadn't read anything in English like that before. I mean, I was, I was reading quite a lot of French books. I mean, the closest that it seemed to me was to Victor Hugo. Mm -hmm. And books like Les Miserables and Notre Dame de Paris that I was that I was used to. Could we just unpack that a bit? Do you mean in terms of scale or in terms of kind of fecundity of vision? Both, really. There was something about the scale of it. There was also something to do with the concentration of language. Mm. When, you, when you had these mm. long sentences that had to be unpacked with not just one image running through the sentence, but a kind of multiplicity of images so that you had a layering this this ability to to tell a story but extremely slowly i found it a page turner but it it's, it takes a very long time for things to happen in victor hugo and mervyn peak is the same mm. you know you will have him spending three or four pages describing a doorknob turning and by the end of it you're going dude please open the damn door but you actually you know, <laughs> by that time you've reached a moment of of exquisite anticipation mm. and he's he's done that to you he's made you really care about the door and the knob and what's behind there mm -hmm. john do you remember when we were on on guernsey together a few years ago we went to victor hugo's house in guernsey and it struck me that that was quite a, a gormenghast uh like yeah it's like that building kind of in, Absolutely. constructed room by room sort of fantasy also i, I get it in the language as well definitely strong whiffs of huisman's that strange sense of sickly, uh, almost kind of th things going to rot. I mean, Peak's so good at, at at summoning mood out of inanimate objects or semi-animate objects or rooms or corners. Well, you can smell the petrichor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, but also the idea of the gormenghast almost as a metaphor for itself, if you know what I mean. The idea yes. that the that the books <laughs> resemble the we should say, what what is Gormenghast? Gormenghast is this vast, sprawling, unrealistic, maximalist, what is it, city? Castle? Well, it's, it's supposed to be a castle, but it's a castle of many pieces because it yeah. has been built over centuries. And so all the pieces were basically added by different members mm. of the family of Grown. 
And so we have many earls of grown and they've 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 all had various hobbies and, and so one of them may have built a library and somebody else may have built this and so you have this I mean I think I kind of imagine Gorman Gast as being a bit like the Duomo in Milan built yes. over centuries Brilliant. in various different styles of Gothic until yeah. what you have eventually is just this sprawl of flying buttresses and weird little pinnacles. But not only that, you've got the main castle and then you've got the outside of the castle and then you've got the outer dwellings, which which is sort of the the, the buildings kind of hanging onto the edge of the castle. And so all of this is, is huge, obviously, but you, you don't really get a good sense of either the scale or the geography of it because Peake isn't really interested in telling you. He's not Tolkien. I used to have tremendous arguments with my best friend at school who was an enormous Tolkien fan about whether Tolkien or Peake was, was best. And she always said Tolkien and I said Peake. Um, Tolkien would have given you maps, he would have given you drawings, you would have known exactly where the Room of Roots was <laughs> and, and yeah. how far it was from the Hall of Spiders. But yeah. you don't get this with Gormenghast because it exists beyond geography. It's a little bit, it's Kafkaesque in that respect. Yes, it's metaphysical rather than physical, isn't it? That's the idea. It's, a, it's somewhere that uh, is a state of mind as much as a physical presence. It, it's a shadow land, isn't it? It's like the, yes. it, to borrow from Stranger Things, it's like the upside-down version of a British stately estate. Well, yes, oh, exactly. Yes. I like that. Yeah. Exactly, and so there is no geography because, like in all myths and legends, people just go where they want to go. They don't go on a journey to get there. They just decide to be there, and, and they, there they mm. are. And crucially, no magic. None. It's not a magical realm. None at all. No magic, no, no spirituality at all, no religion. No. Nothing but tradition. I said to a friend of mine that we were going to be doing um, Gormenghast on the podcast. And they said, I said, have you ever read it? And they went, no, I'm not really into fantasy. Now, yeah. putting aside <laughs> my friend's prejudices or lack of them about fantasy, one of the things I found so interesting when I read it was I thought, well, this isn't fantasy in the sense that I, we might call it it doesn't have some of the genre tropes you would expect. In fact, it doesn't have any of them. So the comparison with Lord of the Rings, which is so crucial to the way the books are marketed in the 1960s, mm. uh, is actually tremendously unhelpful in, in understanding their literary qualities. Very, because they are completely different. They are, in, mm. in a sense, the one is the antithesis of the other. The one is structured, formal, based on a, a tradition of folklore and legend which is already known. The infrastructure is known and anticipated. There are formalised introductions of races. In Lord of the Rings, you know exactly where you are at any time. Um, although, admittedly, in Lord of the Rings magic doesn't quite work the way it does in a lot of other fantasy, you still have this strong mm. underpinning of magic and the logic of magic. Now, there is no logic in Gormenghast at all. There's no magic because it's not needed. Because everything in Gormenghast is surreal. To introduce magic into that would be... It would just be too much because you, you don't need it. Everything in, in, in Gormenghast is kind of suspended and, and moving around in, in this kind of fluid way. So it doesn't, fluid, it yeah. doesn't behave like narrative because it's not formalised, structured narrative. It doesn't have a formal sense of geography. We don't even know very much about the history of 
gourmand and it's so important no. because obviously you know everything is built on this this age-old tradition but actually the inhabitants of gourmand have pretty much forgotten the history because it's just been there for so long and they just go through the motions of these these kafkaesque rituals over and over again without really quite understanding their meaning and and so it's left to us the reader to give it meaning if we can there's also a sense, isn't there, of the uncanny. We've said there isn't magic and it's not fantasy, but there is a sense of the uncanny and there is a sense of mm. the, you know, the role played by animals in Gormenghast, be they yes. mass familiars of cats or transformation into an owl. I don't want to give any spoilers, which is horror in its most um, unmitigated form. Incredible. Right? Yeah. Incredible. It, it is absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it's dark. So mm. we're going to hear something from the text in a minute. And I'm also going to, as is traditional on the podcast, I'm going to read you the blurb from the first edition dust jacket of, Gorman, of Titus <laughs> Grown to see how on earth they managed Brilliant. it. But, um, <laughs> Joanne, one of the things that occurred to me when I started reading is how outside of any literary traditional, though there is one trend I think that does plug into post-war but how outside of any trend peak style is let alone the the uh the the notion of an epic of this kind and the things that matter to him as a writer are visual as you would expect from a visual artist aren't they they're not narrative as you said it's it's a page turner but narrative isn't the thing pushing it onwards no i think that's right i think the thing that pushes onwards is the desire to be more fully immersed in what's going on and the desire to to find your way through what it is because you're right he doesn't follow any any real traditions of writing i think this is much more an exploration of visual phonetics somehow yes this is this Brilliant. is this mm. is a continuation mm. of peak's work as an artist yeah. and when you look at the variation of, of Peake's work. I mean, he's got some stuff that looks like Arthur Rackham. He's got some other things that are completely different, that are kind of rough and, and almost brutalist. And in the middle, he's got all these other styles that he's tried. And, and he's doing this with the writing too, which is why you can have these thoroughly surreal, frivolous pieces of verse, and then these dark, gothic scenarios and the, this bleakness and and then this richness again and this passion and mm. he, he's doing this all over the place and so it's it's like this tremendous tapestry of textures and, yes. and colors and and thoughts and it's it's almost too much for a book to contain which is why it's so fascinating yeah, because yeah. And, and this i'm assuming <laughs> yeah, yeah. is why people see so many different and sometimes opposing things in there because actually it, it is it's much more um, I mean, I think this this is much more a descendant of psychoanalytical texts than it is of novels. Yes, it's like a it's like a cast left by some a compulsively creative uh, imagination tr bursting yeah. out in however it can in in um, pr in the expression of prose or drama or poetry or illustration or. Uh, you know, oil painting or sketching. He, he, he's, he's almost, he's not a savant. That's not what I mean. But there is a sense in which it's an explosion of energy out yes. into the world. And 
C.S. Lewis said something great about it. He said that the, the books had the hallmark of a true myth. I, you've never seen anything like it before you read the book. But after that, you see things like it everywhere. He called it what one may call the Gorman Ghastly has given me a new universal. And I, I do think that that sense, as you, that, that I love that idea of a cast. It's just once you've entered the virus of of uh, of kind of peaks imagination has entered your own it, you do begin to to see echoes of it everywhere well i'm going to give you the blurb that they tried to run on the original <laughs> dust jacket of titus grown the first volume and then i will ask joanne to read us a section one of her favorite parts of the book but this is how you know in the marketing department of air and spottiswood this is how they attempted to sell and we should say when this was published in 46 is that right yeah Mervyn Peake was quite well known. I mean, he was Aaron Spottiswood was his publisher as an illustrator, and he had illustrated certain classic texts. Alice. So he had a yeah. reputation. Yeah. Anyway, here we go. Titus Grown by Mervyn Peake, inside front flap, first edition. Candles gutter, towers of black ivy drip, festooned in old ritual. Figures move by loom and impend along the half-lit corridors of Gormenghast. Swelter, the vast, intolerable cook. Thin flay, his knee joints detonating. Sepulcrave, the earl, a figment of melancholy. Prune squalor, the bizarre physician. The red-haired countess. Steerpike, the plotting youth and the rest of a weird yet very real gathering of the imagination. The dust is deep on the floor of the Hall of the Bright Carvings. The white cats glide along the battlements. All this is like a dream, lush, fantastic, vivid, a symbol of some dark struggle of the heart. Yet this is a serious novel and an exciting one, the imagination at full tide. Whether it succeeds or fails, the quality and intention are frankly epical. <laughs> the huge, strange world of Gormenghast, to which the young Titus is born heir, contains tracts whose exploration must delight the poet, the child, and the plotter in our minds. It compels suspension of our disbelief. Mervyn Peake, already well known as a poet, painter, and illustrator, creates in this novel a consistent and portentous world of his own, macabre yet sane amusing, exciting, lovely in their turn, or to another reader, perhaps unbearable. <laughs> it is not a book for moderate judgments either way. <laughs> and I'm saying to you, listeners, in 160-plus episodes of Backlisted, that is the greatest blurb we have ever read out. That, that is, is absolutely brilliant. incredible. Come on, Mervyn Peake wrote that. <laughs> He must he have. Must Mervyn have Peake must done. have had a hand in that. I guess he must have done, and I love the fact that they're saying basically you might not like this book. Sorry. <laughs> that that <laughs> what can we call this, which will really sell it? I know, unbearable. Unbearable. <laughs> That's right. Very ve you, so, uh, No book. No book today would have unbearable in its blurb. Oh, I love that. That is brilliant. Absolutely, absolutely brilliant. Joanne, what what section have you got for us? Well, I'm going to read something from Titus Grown. Um, I mean, because I read this at 15, 
I immediately assumed that I was fuchsia because I looked <laughs> like fuchsia. I looked like the picture of her on the front cover and I felt like her. And, and I wanted to have her attic. And, and in fact, I did in my mind. I had, uh, I had various imaginary spaces that I'd created. And, uh, and this is a bit where, where Pete goes off on a tangent, as he often does. And he's talking about the relationship of a person with their surroundings. And because the world is such an important part of, of Gormenghast here, he's, he's, he's talking about Gormenghast as well. This is a love that equals in its power the love of a man for woman and reaches inwards as deeply. It is the love of a man or of a woman for their world, for the world of their centre where their lives burn genuinely and with a free flame. The love of the diver for his world of wavering light, his world of pearls and tendrils and his breath at his breast. Born as a plunger into the deeps, he is at one with every swarm of lime-green fish, with every coloured sponge. As he holds himself to the ocean's fairy floor, one hand clasped to a bedded whale's rib, he is complete and infinite. Pulse, power and universe sway in his body. He is in love. The love of the painter, standing alone and staring, staring at the great coloured surface he is making. Standing with him in the room, the rearing canvas stares back with tentative shapes halted in their growth, moving in a new rhythm from floor to ceiling. The twisted tubes, the fresh paint squeezed and smeared across the dry upon his palette, the dust beneath the easel. The paint has edged along the brush's handles. The white light in a northern sky is silent. The window gapes as he inhales his world, his world, a rented room and turpentine. He moves towards his half-born. He is in love. The rich soil crumbles through the yeoman's fingers. As the pearl diver murmurs, I am home, as he moves dimly in strange water lights, and as the painter mutters, I am me, on his lone raft of floorboards, so the slow landsman on his acred marl says with dark fuchsia on her twisting staircase, I am home. It was this feeling of belonging to the winding stair and the attic which Fuchsia experienced as she ran her right hand along the wooden wall as she climbed and encountered after some time the loose board which she expected. She knew that only 18 steps remained and that after two more turns in the staircase, the indescribable grey-gold filtering glow of the attic would greet her. I mean, that is an awesome awesome section amazing and he goes completely <laughs> off piste here because we never hear about this pearl diver again or, or the yoga no, or, or anybody like that it's just it's one of those little you, you read explosions. it so beautifully joanne the 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 sense yeah. that we're so often with these books that the reader is expected to and this is i say this is not a backhanded comment it's wholly positive compliment the reader is expected to intuit a meaning not understand it entirely and that's a Absolutely. very difficult game to play with a reader because the extent to which the reader may go I don't I just don't understand this but but for me when you were when you were reading there I was thinking I I I feel this more than I comprehend it John I did you feel right. do you feel the same with Pete I think so yeah 
Definitely. I think it's it's a little bit like listening to poetry in another language. Mm. When, when I was a teacher and I used to teach French literature, I would sometimes read poetry to the boys aloud. And it would be the kind of poetry that they couldn't really understand the French of unless we really unpicked it. And I said, don't worry about the language anymore. Just listen to the sounds because you will get what it's about. And with some poets, this was true with people like Baudelaire, who yeah. do these kind of pyrotechnics yeah, of, of very... language where you're not really supposed to understand the meaning of the words, just the phonetics of yeah. the, the music of the sound is, is enough. And I think Pete does this quite a lot. I've got a section here from Titus Alone, which is the third book. Um, we'll come on in a minute to the circumstances in which this one was written, because that, that's something to ask you about as well in relation to that. But I just want to, for me, this one paragraph stood out as an example of a... a I, I feel, Peake, as a writer, his sense of exhilaration. He, he's, he's, he's hit a seam of something and he, he's, he's mining it until it's empty uh, for as long as it excites him. Um, he's, he's, uh, he's talking about Titus being uh, in an arena. This is chapter f from chapter 58 of Titus Alone. Around Titus, tier upon tier, for the centre of the arena was appreciably lower than the margin, and there was about the place almost the feeling of a dark circus, were standing or were seated the failures of the earth, the beggars, the harlots, the cheats, the refugees, the scattlings, the wasters, the loafers, the bohemians, the black sheep, the chaff, the poets, the riffraff, the small fry, the misfits, the conversationalists, the human oysters, the vermin, the innocent, the snobs and the men of straw, the pariahs, the outcasts, rag pickers, the rascals, the rake hells, the fallen angels, the sad dogs, the castaways, the prodigals, the defaulters, the dreamers and the scum of the earth. <laughs> I mean, you want to stand up and cheer at the end of that, don't you? I mean, and, and, and Joanne, it works rhythmically. I tried to put into the, into the it, doesn't, it doesn't work uh, literally, it works impressionistically. Absolutely, yes. There's another thing, though, isn't there, that we could make it just sound like it's the most incredible, gorgeous, thousand-page prose poem. But there is a there is a movement, there is a, a development. The first book, Titus is only a, a, a baby. The second book, he he kind of he he grows up and 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 leaves Gormenghast. And then in the third book, he's out he's out in the world in Titus alone, which is in some regards recognisably a world that that is twentieth century, you know, with mm -hmm. with um, the factory and the scientist and the so it's not that there isn't a kind of... It's not that there's no plot. Oh, no. He's too good a writer to make it a, an obvious allegory. But right at the beginning, the, the, the character of Steerpike, the rebel plotter who's, who's referred to throughout as being kind of brilliant and clever, it's just a little bit where he is with Fuchsia and there's a, obviously a tension between them. And 
given that there's the book is about that certainly the first two books are hugely about tradition and the upkeeping of tradition and the sort of the emptiness but importance of ritual he comes on as a sort of as as a rebel and he's talking to fuchsia by the time they'd come to the edge of the woods steerpike was talking airily of any subject that came into his head mainly for the purpose of building up in her mind a picture of himself as someone profoundly brilliant but also for the enjoyment of talking for its own sake for he was in a sprightly mood. She limped beside him as they passed through the outermost trees and into the light of the sinking sun. Steerpike paused to remove a stag beetle from where it clung to the soft bark of a pine. Fuchsia went on slowly, wishing she were alone. There should be no rich, no poor, no strong, no weak, said Steerpike, mm -hmm. methodically pulling the legs off the stag beetle mm -hmm. one by one as he spoke. Equality is the great thing. Equality is everything. He flung the mutilated insect away. Do you agree, Lady Fuchsia, he said. I don't know anything about it, and I don't care much, said Fuchsia. But don't you think it's wrong if some people have nothing to eat, and others have so much they throw most of it away? Don't you think it's wrong if some people have to work all their lives for a little money to exist on, while others never do any work and live in luxury? Don't you think brave men should be recognised and rewarded and not just treated the same as cowards? The men who climb mountains or dive under the sea or explore jungles full of fever or save people from fires? I don't know, Fuchsia said again. Things ought to be fair, I suppose but I don't know anything about it. I mean, it's kind of hard not to hear 1946, you know, uh, first Labour government, end of the end of the Second World War. Um, but how, how extraordinary. So I, I, I'll to add to that, John. I think this is, a I think the success of these novels after the Second World War is totally fascinating. Firstly, yeah. because how many of the characters are, have disabilities, physical have sustained physical damage. That's no coincidence. That's a yeah. big part. The body, the, the the betrayal of the body is a big thing for Peak. Indeed, before, in a self-fulfilling prophecy, before his own body betrayed him. And, but also, you mentioned Steerpike, Joanne. I mean, for me, Steerpike seems like the precursor of that post-war uh, figure represented by Joe Lampton in Room at the Top or... The yeah. Outsider in Camus, The Outsider, or Mr. Sloan in yeah. Entertaining Mr. Sloan. He's like, he prefigures that, um, to quote Morrissey, jumped up pantry boy who never knew his place. That's, that's, fantastic. that's what Steerpike <laughs> is. And indeed, he's seen as the hero, anti-hero of those novels at first. Yes. Until Titus takes yeah. over, yeah. He should be much more appealing than he is. But he's actually <laughs> loathsome. Yeah. I'm going to lower the tone now by quoting 1066 and all that, but he is right but repulsive, isn't he? Yeah. Rather than yeah. wrong but romantic. <laughs> and and the rest of the rest of the castle is basically wrong but romantic. And and he, Steerpike of the fierce intelligence, and, and you can see that Fuchsia can't hold a candle to him intellectually, but she feels with sincerity and she understands in her her rather slow way that he isn't sincere and that all this surface brilliance actually hides a void of no passion at all except this, this what, what Pete keeps calling this overweening ambition. But to do what? Where is he going? Even that is almost existentialist because it, it's, he's got nowhere yeah. to go. There's no place for him in the same way there's no place for Titus. So let's say we don't want to give any... 
we won't give anything away, but we said at the top, Joanne, that the books aren't a trilogy, though that it's habitual to refer to them as such. I felt that uh, it was legitimate to see the first two books, Titus Grown and Gormenghast, as a pair, and then uh, Titus alone as something completely different. And uh, I wondered whether Titus alone is not treated as kindly as it should be because people read it wrong. They think, well, this isn't what I signed up for in this trilogy. But the answer is, but it's not a trilogy. When you first read them, is that how you felt or did it all feel like it cohered? Oh, well, when I first read them, I, I, I didn't know anything about the background. For a start, I read them out of order. I read Gormenghast first, and then I read Titus Grown, and then I read Gormenghast again because I realised that that would be <laughs> the best thing to do, and then I read Titus Alone, and I realised that there was something very different about Titus Alone. Actually, I was very fond of Titus Alone, but for all sorts of different reasons. It, it seemed as if it had been taken from a completely different sequence of books. Even Titus isn't the same, um, and none of the other characters turn up except as effigies of themselves. Mm. Um, and then I read into it and I, I went into his background and read about his history and realised why it was like that. But obviously it was it was never intended to be a trilogy anyway. Even if Peake had been fully healthy when he'd written Titus Alone, it wouldn't have been the conclusion. And so there's nothing concluding about it. It's 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 almost an opening to a series of I think I think Peake intended there to be ten books. And, and it would follow Titus until he was old. Um, I think Sebastian told me this once. So, mm. of course, we've, we've seen very little of that. There's just this, this idea that Titus is going to move away from, from Gormenghast, this place that has given him an identity, and that losing Gormenghast, he loses his identity. And so it, it seems as if it's going to be a kind of progression into a search for the self, but it doesn't really happen because it's... It's 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 been written in haste um, at a time when the writer was not fully in control of what he was doing, and so it feels some of it feels abbreviated, some of it feels unfinished. But actually, I quite like that unfinished feel. There's there's something that that to me echoes Titus's untethered state, if you like, and and his because he's a very He's a very strange character in, in Titus Alone. He's, he's not even particularly likeable. No. I, I have he's to almost colourless. I have to say, I absolutely loved Titus Alone. I, I thought mm, it was a great, a I, great book. I, it made me think of, of like a, a band's third album uh, that they record after the drummer's gone or something, mm. where they're forced to go in a different direction. Yes. And you could compare it to their earlier things, but actually it, it's its own universe and its own style. Stylistically, it's very different yep. to yes. the first two books. It's much less dense stylistically. Yeah. There's still this, this dramatic theatrical sense because all of it has that. But... A lot of it is abbreviated. Um, a lot of it you're expect. I think with with Titus alone, you're expected to bring more of yourself into the interpretation. Honestly, uh, that's interesting. There's more space, isn't there? I just yes. feel that there's a, it's a much airier book than the other two, which were, which are really, really kind of um, the, the brooding kind of you no know, 
sort of heavy, moisture-laden air of the first two books. In Titus alone, it feels it feels much more feels much more like a kind of philosophical fiction. Well, t- I, I mean, Titus it, alone is like Colin Wilson's The Outsider in both theme and mm, late fifties late fifties uh, sense of. We're not in the Second World War anymore. We're not post-war. Yeah. We're looking to see what the future is going to be. Um, it's funny you said The Outsider because I thought of Camus' The Outsider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because actually, yeah. If, if you look at the way Titus speaks, he, he does speak quite a lot like Meursault. He says the truth mm. in a sort of unvarnished, bold way. He doesn't care who it upsets because he just says things as he sees them. Uh, this doesn't make him likable or liked, but... No. It definitely makes him an outsider. He's an unlikable. And I do character. think. I mean, I've I've often had the theory that that Camus' outsider was was autistic because he has a certain kind of delivery and a certain way of seeing mm. the world. And I, I've mm, often mm. thought the same of Titus that mm. he has a very mm. particular picture of the world and other people and his connection with them. And and I I just you know this this is how I read him. Joanne, I I read um, an interview with you where you were saying, I found this totally fact, you were saying Mervyn Peake is a great example of a writer where, you know, we all grew up in the academic environment of death of the author theory. Um, Mervyn Peake, on the other hand, is you do need to know the circumstances in which these books were written to fill in things that otherwise won't perhaps make sense. And and that's a big part of it, isn't it? The, this sense of peak as first this massive creative force, and second of someone struggling against a long illness. That's you can't yes. ignore that. That's part Absolutely. of the books. No, I think context matters very much with peak, and not just his background, his visits to Belson, um, you know, the, the China part of his his upbringing, but also his illness, his long illness, because. I think if we if we think of this as I do as a sort of Jungian allegory, then he himself is in there. I mean, if we get on to talk about Titus Awakes, he's definitely in there. Yeah. Um, and it's a question of of finding him, and in a way, I think he's he's trying to find himself in these books and trying to find the wholeness of himself. And as yes. the narrative becomes more scattered in in Titus alone and the characters become more theatrical and more caricatural. You, you can see his connection with the the passion of people and their emotions disappearing, and you can see his dismay over that and, and his not knowing what to do. And, and some of it, I'm sure, is, is an exploration of his own degenerating physical condition and his mental condition. Whether he intended it to come across that way or not, everybody knows that fiction is life filtered through a series of lenses and and one of those has to be his illness. This is a clip of his son Sebastian and his daughter Claire talking about the later years of Mervyn Peake's life and that and that feeds exactly into what Joanne was just talking about here. My father had written a, a play you know that we all thought would do rather well the night before we'd all watched him and my mother go off to the first night of the play then uh, the reviews came out the following day after the first night and they were very dismissive and we saw him crumble and he, you know, never got well again after that. 
I, I remember coming downstairs and a doctor had been called and he was sitting outside his study, shaking sort of violently, and he was taken off to hospital that day with a major, major breakdown. We just don't know whether they say that his illness could have been precipitated by that, but could have been something that he'd picked up in China as a child and lay in dormant and then come out with a shock. Yeah. So nobody knew what it was, whether it was a breakdown, whether it's... And, and eventually, whether that became Parkinson's or whether he'd have had it anyway, yeah. we just don't know. So I was seven then, and you were, Sebastian, what, 17, mm. and Fabian was 15. Yeah. Then, of course, the terrible decision was made to have that dreadful operation, of course, yeah. the lobotomy, yeah. which didn't do what they thought it was going to yeah. do. It just yeah. transferred the shaking from one side of his body to yes. the other. He, you know, never got well again after that. If you can bear it, everybody, if you go to the National Portrait Gallery's website, you can find a picture that Peake's wife, Maeve Gilmore, painted in 1967, the year before Peake died, which is one of the most haunting and distressing pieces of work, utterly truthful, because Maeve Gilmore was, of course, an artist and a writer in her own right. Um, the extent to which Peake is... is disappearing from his own body because of his illness um for anyone to write or create under those circumstances is sort of uh, extraordinary mm. the family also said didn't they they sebastian his son says it would have been much better for my father had he never he acts he, he spends the whole war trying to become a war artist and he's accepted and pretty much the first assignment that he's given is to is he's sent off to the liberation of the concentration camps. And yeah. the children say it's the worst thing that could have happened to him because he with no one knew what they were going to go to encounter and it affected him for the rest of his life. John, you you found something relating to that, didn't you? We've talked about his descriptive powers, but there's a, a little poem that he wrote uh, about a consumptive Belson 1945 which I think has elements of the darkness I mean you feel that there's a, the, there's there are elements of the darkness of this in the book as well if seeing her an hour before her last weak cough into all blackness I could yet be held by chalk white walls and by the great ash colored bed and the pillows hardly creased by the tapping of her little cough-jerked head. If such can be a painter's ecstasy, her limbs like pipes, her head a china skull, then where is mercy? You do get mm. the feeling in, in, the, in the poems that he writes at that, at that period, and, and some of them, you know, he's, he, he wrote funny verse as well, but the, the, the poems that, that he wrote as, as, as a war artist trying to paint and almost making sort of ver verbal sketches that it was it was it was pretty unbearable and some part of that unbearableness i i'm always struck by sepulgrave the 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 the, the, the titus's father the deep kind of depression and mel melancholy it's one of it's one of the great seems to me one of the great um portraits of a of a depressive in literature yeah, yeah, i mean i agree and the, is, the way he deals with the end, the end of Sepulchre Graves' life, which we won't go into, but it's a wonderful I mean, depiction. Haunting. And and the and there's a wonderful scene where 
Circle Crave is trying to connect with the young Titus yeah. by offering him pine cones. Mm. Yes. Um, and and he's gathered these pine cones for Titus to play with and, and they mean something to him, but Titus isn't really that interested and he feels so depressed that he hasn't managed to make even this basic connection with his son. I mean, if look just looking at Sepulcrave and looking at his environment, you could almost say that the whole of Gormenghast is a sort of representation of what depression looks like as a piece of architecture. Yeah, yeah. He, he... He says it's it, yeah. it's it it may be that not the cones themselves that angered him, Sepulgrove, but that they acted in some way as a reminder of his failures. It's beautiful. It's I, so I sad. think that's so true, Joanne. I think the I think that is one of the reasons why I was polaxed by it, because I didn't it, it I like it when I don't understand stuff. I like it when you know no creative writing program is going to have produced these books they they that's not to, that's not that sounds mean i don't mean it to be but they they <laughs> the rules don't apply no, and they as, don't. because the rules don't apply they give you an experience you're not going to get from a more okay. um formal piece of work yes and a lot of it is very raw and very experimental and not based on the rules of narrative at all, based more on the rules of, of art. Yes. And what's there on the canvas, rather than the, the narrative from page to page. And so there's, there's that aspect of it too, which is, is fascinating, because it seems to me that he, doesn't, he moves from one medium to another without even realising that he's doing it. So he has these illustrations, and then he has poems that just fluidly appear into the narrative, and... And then he has passages of prose that sound like poetry anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it all serves the whole. Well, regular listeners might like to know that uh, Mervyn Peake was a graduate of the Croydon School of Arts, so... Uh... now it's time for us to say farewell to Gormenghast and its denizens huge thank you to Joanne for guiding us through its dark corridors and to Nicky Birch for making our individual voices sound out in the gloom and to Unbound for helping us herd our white cats and feed our stone chats <laughs> you can download all 164 previous episodes plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website backlisted.fm and we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook and now in sound and pictures on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early. And for less than the price of a pagoda of toast from Swelter's Great Kitchen, lock listeners get two extra lock listeds a month our very own Gothic castle, <laughs> where we three perform intricate rituals of appreciation so connected to the books, <laughs> films and music we've enjoyed who, in the previous who, who fortnight. Who wouldn't want to stump up for that? Absolutely, I would. <laughs> lot, lot listeners also get to have their names carved in stone on the <laughs> battlements <laughs> of, uh, of the closing credits of this show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. So, John, who are you chiselling into the rock this week? Huge, th huge thanks this week to Susie Robertson, to, to Patrick Barrett, to SB, to Anne Smith, to Lee Razor and Holly Gage. They sound like characters in... in, in, um, in they really do. Thank you 
through all your generosity and to all our patrons, huge thanks for enabling us to continue to do what we love and enjoy. Joanne, before we go, is there anything you would like to say about Mervyn Peak or the Gormenghast sequence? <laughs> we didn't have time to talk about Titus Awakes, which is Maeve Gilmore's book, and that's brilliant as well. That is brilliant in its own right. It really and, is. And definitely worth reading, even though it doesn't yeah. quite read as part of the the sequence, because she has her own story to tell, and absolutely, she, she has her own personal journey of grief, which she's using this book to, yes. to negotiate. But uh, no, that they, they are wonderful books, but they need to be taken with no expectation of them being like anything else at all, and they are deeply felt and passionate and poetic and also if you can possibly read them aloud because they are made to be read aloud they, yeah. these are soundscapes as well as as visual expressions of 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 feelings so yeah just if you haven't read them yet i kind of envy you for not yeah. not yet having discovered them well thank you joanne I don't know that in my advanced years I would have found my way back without your help. And uh, <laughs> it's been a major, major exp reading experience for me this year. So thank you so much. I couldn't agree more. Well, um, it's like a, a complete other possibility of 20th century literature that I didn't, I didn't know existed. So thank you. And that's, well, what, and that's just them. one episode. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening, everybody. Uh, we'll see you in thank a fortnight. You, thank you. Bye. Bye. had exactly the same rhythms as Baudelaire's poem Au Lecteur. That's fascinating. Which is interesting. I mean, I was, I was going to say this at one point and I thought, well, no, because if I just start reading stuff in French, people are going to say I'm crazy. But uh, <laughs> you just, just, just listen to this for a minute and you will see what I mean. Hang on, let me see if I can find it. It's got to be here. La sottise, l'erreur, le péché, la lésine occupe nos esprits et travaille nos corps, et nous alimentons nos aimables remords comme les mendiants nourrissent leurs vermines. Nos péchés sont têtus, nos repentirs sont lâches, nous nous faisons payer grassement nos aveux, et nous rentrons gaiement dans le chemin bourbeux, croyant par de vils pleurs laver toutes nos tâches. Si le viol, le poison, le poignard, l'incendie n'ont pas encore brodé de leurs plaisants dessins le canevas banal de nos piteux destins, c'est que notre âme, hélas, n'est pas assez hardie. Mais parmi les chacals, les panthères, les lys, les singes, les scorpions, les vautours, les serpents, les monstres glapissants, hurlants, grognants, rampants, dans la mélangerie infâme de nos vices, il en est un plus laid, plus méchant, plus immonde, quoiqu'il ne pousse ni grands gestes, ni grands cris, il ferait volontiers de la terre un débris et dans un bâillement avalerait le monde. C'est l'ennui. L'œil chargé d'un pleur involontaire, il rêve d'échafaud en fumant son houka. Tu le connais, lecteur, ce monstre délicat. Hypocrite lecteur, mon semblable, mon frère. Isn't this great? Isn't it fabulous? And doesn't it just sound like it? If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. 
That's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.